This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode number 95. Today, I got to deep dive with Mimi LeMay. She's the author of the evocative memoir, What We Will Become, A Mother, a Son, and a Journey of Transformation. Just a fair warning that I cry a few times in this interview She talks about her own past and how it has shaped how she approached the transition of her son. Her son transitioned when he was young. He was uh, around four years old, I think it was. And there is so much detail about the emotional realities of being a mother of a trans child, but also just an honest reflection that comes with being a supportive parent. And I yeah, just like very teary during this. She's an amazing woman and mom. And I thoroughly loved hearing her share her story, both in the book, like reading it and then listening to her in this interview. She, she got me. So grab some tissues, um, and buckle up because we talk about not just like raising a trans child, but what does it mean to be an ally? How are we raising other kids? to be kind, empathetic, compassionate humans, and how can we show up for one another in this journey? Hey guys, in a couple weeks, on the Monday after Thanksgiving, we are going to be launching tickets to Mama's Getaway for April 2020. We will be launching all of those details, but it is going to be in San Diego, California. So stay tuned to learn more about where you can snag your ticket to come join us for Mama's Getaway the last weekend of April in 2020. Mark your calendars and buckle up for tickets to launch on Monday after Thanksgiving. All right, let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. everyone. Welcome to Voices of Your Village. Today I'm here with Mimi LeMay and this was so timely. Uh, Her publicist reached out. She is the author of What We Will Become and she's going to tell you all about that but her publicist reached out to see if we wanted to check out her new book that was coming out and all that jazz and it was so timely because we had had a parent just reach out with questions about navigating the transition of her daughter. And Mimi, I'm so jazzed to dive in with you today. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and kind of what brings you here today? Sure, Alyssa. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm delighted to be here and to be reaching out to all those parents um, with our story and hopefully um, offering a little solace and advice and just a community to parents going through something similar. So uh, my husband and I had what we thought were three uh, little girls. 
back in 2010, my middle child was born. I, I don't use um, their old name anymore because that's considered dead naming for a transgender kid. It's, um, it's, uh, it's not something that we do uh, to respect and validate their um, identity. So I will call uh, my child M, which is a pseudonym that I picked with him. And um, our middle child M was born in 2010 and at around the age of two and a half, something odd started to happen. M started to tell us that they were a boy, not a girl. And there was nothing different about M's birth or about M's physiognomy that we could see. But this claim to be a boy came along with some behaviors that were disturbing. Uh, M became very anxious, uh, almost to the level of compulsive about certain things, angry, insistent that they were a boy. And this insistence lasted for almost two years uh, before we realized that we needed to release M from this really, really dark place that they were headed and um, gave M the choice to transition. M chose to become Jacob, a boy, always, as Jacob says, and I've, I've written in the book. And um, from that moment on, the transformation was remarkable in our child. We got our happy child back, um, a well-adjusted child. My son is now nine years old. He's doing very well. He has friends. Most importantly, he's able to love and accept love from others, which was something that we were seeing him in decline over during the years before his transition. And I hope that I can carry a message of joy and hopefulness to other parents, because even though knowing that your child might have more challenges in life as a transgender individual can be very frightening, and the choices that you make before transition can seem daunting, but with the transition, we have discovered that our child is now living their true self. And I cannot speak enough about the joy that that has brought me as a parent. And I hope that I can share that with everyone. Well, that made me cry. Um, <laughs> nope, that's okay. We, I've been told I need to cry. <laughs> all feelings are welcome here. Just the part where you were like uh, talking about him becoming you got your happy child back I just was like oh um how amazing that is but so let's let's dive into this because the synopsis you just gave I think it's fantastic for folks to know kind of what we're navigating here but it's quite an overview right and I'm sure the behind the scenes yeah. as folks will see in the book is not as like rainbows and great and all that jazz there's the hardship in navigating all of it one of the things as I was reading, I was just like, wow, like, first of all, your mother-in-law is amazing. She's awesome. Uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah, she's fantastic. Um, but one of the things that I was thinking, we, were t we talk a lot in our village about who we are as kids and how we are parented and how that feeds into then who we are as adults and really in our subconscious, even when we're not aware of it, um, that so many patterns exist in our thoughts and how we react and respond. And in, in reading your book, I was just like struck by, first of all, your self-awareness um, as you navigated this journey, but I love how you really discussed your like reparenting journey of mm -hmm. yourself through this. How did you rewrite the patterns from your childhood moving in into here? So um, that's an excellent question. I felt during the process of Jacob's transition almost as if I was being haunted by an earlier iteration of myself. And this feeling grew stronger as we got closer to a transition. And it's something that I didn't, almost didn't have the time to parse out until I wrote the book. But uh, I was raised in a very, very uh, restricted religious environment of ultra-Orthodox Jewry. Um, this isn't uh, the modern Orthodox Jewry that people might be more familiar with, people who, um, you know, integrate into society and um, 
and uh, have jobs in, in, in what we call the outside world, it's, it's really a community that sticks to itself, almost a self-imposed ghetto. And um, everything in your life from the morning you, the moment you wake up in the morning till when you go to bed, from the moment you are born to the moment you die is um, very set for you, a path is set for you. There are thousands and thousands of laws and rituals and philosophies and ways of thinking that are pretty set out already. Um, they're prescriptive from that moment that you are born, as well as your role as a male or female in this community. And as an ultra-Orthodox Jewish woman, I had a role to play. Um, and what was difficult for me growing up and becoming a teenager was that I actually wanted, I had a very curious intellectual mind, and I wanted to learn the way the, that the men and the boys were directed to learn, which was intensely diving into original sources, coming up with their own um, kind of hermeneutic take on texts. And it was just, for me, that was a delightful um, way of experiencing a faith by really looking at texts and diving into and becoming scholars. And that wasn't, that wasn't allowed for me as, as a woman in this community. There were, was no ordination for ultra-Orthodox Jewish women uh, to the rabbinate, and there still isn't um, in the ultra-Orthodox. And um, things like LGBTQ lives was, were just absolutely considered uh, forbidden. Um, and growing up, I felt that. I felt that what was, it felt to me like a very strong misogyny, but I also believed in this community, in this way of life. and. I felt that this was what God had intended for me, that I was designed this way. This is what I'd been told. So the only conclusion I could draw was that there was something wrong with me. And being an advocate in the transgender community, the parallel has been striking that looking back at fundamentalist texts or looking back in, with a fundamentalist eye towards original religious texts, people may draw the conclusion that LGBTQ lives are not this, of the same value, that, pe that people who are gay or transgender are somehow um, going against the design that God willed for them. And this has caused untold harm to this community not only because people are discriminated against in the LGBTQ plus community, but also because the, the internalization of shame when you believe that God, that you are somehow wrong the way you are made um, has been very harmful to a community that has a really high rate of um, self-harm and um, some really negative outcomes if they are, if they internalize this shame. When I realized that my son was going through a similar process that I went through growing up, it was at that moment that my determination was awakened that he would not go through this because I reached a very low place in my life. And, and you can read about it in the book when I had just gone through a disastrous arranged engagement with a young man. And it seemed that the life that I was supposed to lead that didn't fit me in the first place had just come crashing down around me. And I reached a moment where I began to harm myself. And I internalized all that anger and pain and I turned it on myself instead of questioning my faith and questioning the people who told me they, they had the interpretation of my faith in a lock. I questioned myself and I could see my son begin to internalize that shame you know, no, you're not a boy, you're a girl, look at your body parts. You need to do this for us. You need to be this for our society because this is what has been ordained. Um, and you can't break these boxes. You can't break these boundaries. I could not let him go down the same path and it became so blindingly clear. So in some ways, the painful experience of my past helped me understand what my son needed. And in doing so, and I won't give any spoilers away, I got a gift back in return in that the struggles of my faith that had led me to almost have a 
a jaundiced look at my faith and uh, a tenuous relationship with God that was based on some bitterness and anger and resentment on my part was flipped around. And I suddenly realized that this son that was given to me, he is a gift to me, not only because he is such a precious human being, but it's possible that everything that had led up to this moment, including my difficult childhood and my having to leave my faith was purposeful, was meant to be, was a sign of love from a creator, if you believe in one. Oh, I love that. So often we hear things like, oh, everything happens for a reason. And I've shared a lot about this on this podcast and in our community, but I'm a rape survivor. And so that everything happens for a reason kind of makes me be like, what? No way. (laughs) Like there's no way this happened for a reason. But I do think it's powerful to find purpose in our past and in our journey and in our story. And that is so empowering. It's what led me here in doing this work, right? Yeah. Was that like, this is my purpose. And, and, and I think I'm here because of my journey. And uh, I just heard that in you and how you get to now navigate this journey with your son with purpose from your past. Yeah, exactly. And it, it is redeeming of, you know, the pain that we go through when we can turn it into, when we can be that person, that linchpin, that can change another person's life. When we can be that, the person that they needed at any given moment, it, it brings it, it brings resolution to the past. It, it brings some form of redemption. And I think that that's the experience that I was given as a gift. Yeah, I do a workshop where I, with moms, it's just moms in the room and I, have you do like a meditation, we close your eyes and we go back to your childhood and it'll be different points for anybody, but you're envisioning yourself as a child and you're walking in that door and looking at like, how can you best support that kid, right? Like, what does that kid need? And you got to do that with your son. That's really, yeah, that's beautifully put. And I I will have to join that meditation (laughs) because it sounds like something that everyone can benefit from. Yeah, it it changed my life for sure. So as you're navigating this, you're, you're not alone in this. You have two other daughters, you have, um, your husband in this journey. I want to talk about what this looks like for your family unit. Did your husband have to do reparenting through this as well? And navigating even just the, I guess, acceptance or like mourning of what you thought was going to be in the acceptance of the new. Yes, definitely. I think on on his part, um, it, it took a different. It looked different from the outside. Uh, it's interesting. We we talk often about you know how it hit us at different moments. Um, in the book, there's a moment, you know, around Christmas time of of M's um, third year where it's it strikes me that this is real. This isn't play acting. This isn't pretending. For her and um, that was the moment when I started to panic and feel grief for the first time. For my husband around the time of the transition itself was the moment where he had to let go of his ideas about the daughter he would raise that he would walk her down the aisle and I think that's when for him um, it was a difficult period and um, so I, I think I'm actually very grateful for Joe because I talk to a lot of parents who are going through similar situations in their families. And when one child transitions, it's a transition for the whole family. You have to reconfigure all the preconceived notions about who your child is. You have to deal with both the grief, knowing that you kind of have to um, project to your child only love and support um, because you don't want them to feel that you are grieving who they, them becoming the best version of themselves that they can be because that can also damage a child. So a lot of it is kind of internalized um, loss. But I'm, I'm grateful because a lot of families, we find that whoever the primary um, caregiver is, the person who's with the child most during the day is generally the person who understands quicker and does the research quicker and knows that their child is transgender and might need to trans- transition 
And the other parent generally struggles longer because they're not there all the time. They don't see, you know, the, the child struggle um, as viscerally. And sometimes it's, it's the mom who's with the child all day or most of the day or, or cares for, and then the dad has a really hard time. Um, and sometimes it's vice versa. But um, Joe, even though he was working most of the time, you know, and, and wasn't able to spend as much time, seemed to, to follow absolutely with the same pace as I did in, in realizing that Jacob needed tr to transition. And, um, and he, he saw it as a matter of risk assessment almost. He, he went to business school. He's an MIT business school grad. <laughs> Sometimes this was frustrating for me because he's always running the numbers on everything and saying what's feasible and what's not. And, and I'm the one who wants to get the kids the, the large inflatable bouncy castle that costs $300 in our backyard because we're going to use it all the time. Don't you see? It's going to make sense. And he's the one who kind of puts the cold water on everything. But in this case, him running the numbers really ended up with, he helped me realized that this was a solid decision to make and it was the right decision to make. And it wasn't only emotional, it was also practical because we understood that 41% of transgender adults have attempted suicide at least once in their life. And that statistic puts everything else in perspective. And he said, we cannot let this drag on endlessly for our child because we see that our child is declining emotionally they're withdrawing from people, they're picking up all these anxiety ticks and habits. We can't keep waiting because if you're gonna look at this risk assessment wise, this growing darkness as he called it in our child can may be irreversible, but letting following our child's lead and saying, listen, we're gonna listen to you, we're gonna let you do this was at the age of four when Jacob transitioned very, very reversible. And um, so he helped me in this process. He provided a steady guidance that I needed that, that if he as a practical person and me as an incredibly emotional person could reach the same point, then I knew we were on the right path. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for me, Levine, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. Well, it's interesting. Like I, one of the questions that I got from our village was like, how do you know that it isn't just play, right? That they're not like, oh, I'm just exploring with dramatic play or figuring out what gender means and all that jazz. And I'd love for you to speak to like, what that looked like behind the scenes. The, the parent who reached out said that her son often wears a tutu just around the house, wants to wear it out, whatever. And they're like, but that that's what they're seeing is like, mm -hmm. he just wants to wear a tutu and like, that's fine. And does that mean something more? Should we be paying attention to something more? Uh, and I'd love for your thoughts on that. Absolutely. 
I think that it's important to um, think about gender identity as being separate from gender expression and also se separate from sexual orientation. So um, there's frequently conflating in the media between uh, sexual orientation, for example, which is something that uh, the attraction a child feels for either same sex, opposite sex, both, um, that usually develops and changes over time around puberty, a kid starts to feel attraction, they kind of know if they're gay or not or bi. Um, gender expression is the way you like to dress, the activities you like to do, are they stereotypically male or female? And again, stereotypes, uh, not, not something I often truck with, but with a parent with a transgender child, you may see that your child likes to play only with trucks and rejects Barbies. That's, that's a matter of expression. Those are your likes and dislikes. The tutu is expressive, right? Um, I like colorful, frilly things. Um, that is not the same as gender identity. Gender identity is when a child says to you, I am followed by a boy, a girl, neither, both. And that is something that is deeply internal to the child and is close to their, it is layered into their very sense of who they are. Um, and sometimes a transgender child will express themselves very much as stereotypically the gender they identify with. So for example, Jacob did enjoy playing with trucks and you know Thomas the Train. He wanted short hair. He wanted to wear boy clothes or stereotypically boy clothes. But it wasn't until he started insisting that he was a boy and showing distress at being taken as a girl that we realized that his identity was male. One thing that's really important to note is that uh, psychologists and, and behavioral therapists have often said that a transgender child is insistent, persistent, and consistent in expressing their gender, in expressing verbally their gender identity by telling you who they are. But the truth is, is that sometimes a child can be scared away from being insistent because they've gotten negative feedback, whether it's from parents or grandparents or babysitters or people at school. But so they may not always insist and it may be important for a parent to check in with a child who's experienced some trauma around this. Do you still feel this way? Is this who you are? Um, but you will see a consistency and a persistence in either the expression that they are a boy, I, I am a boy or a girl, or the um, or the sense of sadness around not being perceived as who they truly are, and so that that will drag over time, and um, it's important for a parent to realize that at some point they need to sit down and have an honest discussion with a child, no matter what the age is, and say, "Listen, what do you want us to do here?" and to give them choices. And I know some parents are afraid and there's discussions about, well, if I give a child this choice, I'm kind of pushing them to choose to transition, but it's not easy to transition. It's not easy to be trans. And if a child is coming to you with such bravery and courage and saying, this is who I am, the, the best and the only thing that you can do is support them at every stage. And if it does turn out to be a stage and they are young, there is no harm. In, in following them. The harm is in saying, I'm going to hold back this process. I'm going to try to derail the train. We often use a um, metaphor of they're driving the train. You know, we can either be on board or we cannot, but that's our choice. If they're telling us who they are, that's who they are and we need to follow. I love that so much. In episode 13 with uh, Tristan Reese, who's a transgender dad, and really shared his journey and, and talked about gender as a whole. And uh, from his perspective, he said, I have never in, in, now this is his life's work. He's like, I've never in my life heard from anyone who was like, oh, I'm really bummed that they let me express in whatever way I wanted to express or identify in whatever way I wanted to identify younger 
And then I had to like make a different choice later or things changed later or whatever. He's like, I've never encountered anyone who was bummed that they were given that opportunity to be who they were at any given stage. He's like, but I have for sure encountered the opposite. That's so powerful. Thank you for that. Who did you decide to like out Jacob to, right? Like how how do you navigate the outing of the child when they're a child? Well, as um, in the beginning of our transition, it was limited to family and friends because um, people knew my child is M and Mm -hmm. as a girl, and suddenly they're showing up with a new name, new pronouns, and uh, with, as a boy. Um, So it started off with our very small, closest circle of family and friends, uh, many of whom had already been involved in our struggle and kind of knew what was going on. And then about two or so weeks into the transition, two or three weeks into the transition, when we felt we were on steady ground, uh, I wrote a, a Facebook post to not public at the time, it was just to our, our friends who didn't see us all the time or saw us less frequently and said, hey, you know, introducing to you our son, Jacob Joseph LeMay, uh, and with a very brief synopsis of the story. And I actually, it was, it was June 13th, I believe, when we actually transitioned um, fully into the male name and, and pronouns. And, you know, he was already kind of heading in that direction, but that was the day of transition. We call it Jacob Day in our family. We always celebrate it, which is kind of nice. I um, love that. But it was July 4th that I put my um, post out to Facebook uh, to our friend group. And um, I chose to wait just until that day first to make sure that we were on solid ground and we felt comfortable reaching out to others. And also because July 4th was Independence Day. And I spoke about, you know, letting our child we hoped um, pursue happiness in the way that the founders of our country talked about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that we hope that this would be for him in a self-actualization and a moment where he could become his true self and live his life as he wanted. And um, we had so much support. I mean, there were people who didn't respond at all and Maybe I lost a few friends, but for the most part, people were incredibly supportive. And a lot of people at that time didn't know that there could be a transgender child because uh, let me remind you that was back in 2014 before a lot of media had covered uh, transgender youth. This was before the tragic suicide of Leela Alcorn um, in December of that year. And the topic of transgender children just hadn't been made widely known in any way, shape, or form. So I am extremely grateful to those people who said, I may not understand this, but I'm listening. That's amazing. How did you navigate it with like school, teachers, uh, peers? Jacob decided, and this was one of the choices we gave him, that I said, you could, you could go back to your old school and we could give them your new name and you just start you know, your new pre-K grade as Jacob, and uh, we could do that too, or we could go to a different school and nobody would know you as M, hopefully, or a few people might, but you get to start fresh. You don't have to carry the burden of explaining yourself to other kids. And he did choose that. So it happened to be that there was a fabulous preschool in our town that we hadn't been using. We'd been going to the town over because they, they had a really good program for our child. Our first child had needed some little extra help and um, our early intervention specialist had picked the other school. So we had this great choice right in our town. And so I called a few friends who had kids in that school and I said, hey, can you introduce me to the the school director? Um, Because I didn't want her to think I was a crazy not coming out of nowhere. And and she did and, and the director was really supportive and we talked to the teachers and the school nurse and uh, we figured out that uh, Massachusetts had a wonderful guidance for schools related to gender identity, um, a guidance that became federal under the Obama administration and then sadly was stripped away 
under the Trump administration. Um, and so we, we urged the school to follow the guidance and they absolutely did. Um, and Jacob started his first day as Jacob and was not outed to anybody in his class, which was what he wanted at the time. Um, and things went pretty smoothly, I'd have to say. How have you navigated with Jacob conversations? So I taught preschool for a while and I'm like just imagining in my classroom, like we have open bathrooms, et cetera. Like how have you navigated with Jacob the conversation of uh, kind of prepping him for times where somebody might say like, oh, I'm a boy because I have a penis or I'm a girl because I have a vagina. Like how have you kind of prepped or navigated that with him? So from the very start, uh, we made it clear to him that there was an understanding gap between parents who did have trans kids and people and who hadn't heard of a trans kid. And so we talked of it in terms of, you know, and we know, and lots of people know that a boy can have a vagina but not everyone knows that. So they may be slow in understanding that and they may say something that seems wrong to you. And you have a choice. You can either say, actually, that's not true. Um, having a penis doesn't make you a boy. It's, it's your gender in your, in your head and the way you feel about yourself. But you can also choose not to be part of that conversation and just understand that they don't mean it harmfully, um, that they just might not know. And um, this is been something that we're able to tell him even now at nine, you know, as even as understanding is expanding in the world and most people have heard the word transgender, um, there's still people who don't, who don't understand that, you know, transgender people exist. They really are real. It's not, it's not some kind of mental disability. Um, it is who they are. They have the brain gender. It might be different than the sex assigned at birth and that's it. And it's simple. Um, and he understands that there are people who don't understand and that he has a choice. He can either, he can choose to advocate, he can choose to um, stay silent and just uh, live his life. And those choices are his. And I'm proud to say that as of really recently, he started to turn toward advocacy on his own. And I am uh, incredibly proud. We had an amazing moment last week when we were in LA for the, um, the town hall, um, the LGBTQ plus town hall put on by HRC and CNN. And he stood up and asked Elizabeth Warren a question about how in her administration, she would protect trans kids like himself. And uh, I was so proud of that because I feel like that's really empowering. That's so empowering. Yeah. And also kudos to you because that confidence and self-regulation that it stands to stand up even when you're probably scared and the courage and bravery that he brought to that doesn't just happen that's fostered um so kudos to you guys thank you um yeah i'm just crying again okay. <laughs> um it feels like that's going to be a theme of this interview do you have fears about this going forward and if so like what are they? And, and let's, yeah, I'd like to dive into those. I think every parent in general has fears mm -hmm. of like, what ifs and how do we navigate all the unknowns of life? But we know that um, bullying is mm -hmm. a real problem in terms of LGBTQ plus kiddos. Uh, and as you're saying, like the self-harm and, and suicide rates and all that jazz. So what are your fears specific to this issue going forward? Yeah, so um, I know and I think about it frequently that even though the, the statistics become much better for trans kids who have supportive families, and I believe it's, they're eight times less likely to self-harm. And that is a huge number if they have one supportive adult, two supportive adults in their lives. Even though that is, that buoys me up, I do feel that, you know, once I send him out of my house to school, there are other dangers waiting there. And like you mentioned, bullying, um, microaggression, um, 
feeling alienated or different, uh, something that a lot of teenagers feel for other reasons, but it particularly hits our LGBTQ plus students and youth very hard. And I, I would be foolish to think that he is inoculated against that just because we love him and support him and he has friends that do. So I do fear that. I fear that the challenges of not being atypical as a boy in terms of his anatomy will make it difficult for him. You know, um, he worries about dating too at this age, nine. Yes, he started to talk about it. Like, I know I'm, it's gonna be harder for me to find somebody to date. And I said, how could anyone not love you? <laughs> and I mean it. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, as every parent does, that no matter how your kid is different from anybody else, that people will see right through to their beautiful heart and their wonderful mind. Um, and that he will find somebody who he loves, a, a kindred spirit. Um, but I worry about that. I worry about, you know, middle school in particular, before kids are mature enough to let go of some of the bullying and the kind of the, the more petty level of putting people down. Um, I just, I keep in touch with um, our school guidance counselors. I keep in touch with teachers. I tell them, I want you to look out. I want you to look out for signs that he's struggling. And so far, there have been very few times that a teacher has had to reach out to me and say, he looked really sad today. Um, but I do, I do worry about it. And I, I know that at any stage, the right answer is still to support to support when he needed blockers and he is on blockers right now, uh, which means nothing more than puberty is delayed and it's completely reversible if he chooses. I, I worry about him having to, you know, is it gonna be hard for him when he needs to take hormones um, at some point when he is, let's say 14 years old, if his choice is to take um, testosterone, that's gonna be difficult. Um, and, but I do know that at any given point, the alternative is much more harmful to hold back, to let these fears make me choose a path, which unfortunately can lead to greater harm. I also worry about the level of viciousness in public discourse against trans people. And I know that that doesn't represent an ordinary citizen who lives next to us. I hope it doesn't. Um, I hope he'll never encounter it in real life. I know a lot of people say things behind a keyboard that they would never say to a person in real life. But I hope that he never internalizes the kind of hatred that, that I do see out there, unfortunately. Um, and I hope that the forces that are pushing social change, positive social change, and the information that is getting out there and the stories that are being shared more and more each day will cre create that societal tipping point where acceptance will follow. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, 
a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. I, I'm i glad you touched on that because I think for a lot of folks, um, if you're not directly affected by something, it can be hard to understand the weight or the magnitude of public discourse, policy change, et cetera, when it doesn't directly affect you. And I'm, I'm, you've highlighted a few times in, in our conversation with, um, you know, Trump's reversal and uh, all that jazz, but I, I want people to just pay attention, I guess, to the fact that even if you don't have, if this doesn't directly affect you, just being mindful of the fact that um, it is affecting others in, in totally. deep, powerful ways. Absolutely. All right. We had two more questions from our village. One person was asking like how I, I shared that they had asked like, does, are there siblings involved or whatever? And I said, yes, yes. Two sisters. He said, how are you supporting the sisters? And then this was interesting. I was just listening to a Monica Lewinsky interview the other day and one of the most publicly shamed human beings uh, probably ever. And she was sharing how like, as she was navigating um, the impeachment and all that jazz that she couldn't talk to her brother and her brother was in college and just how it was for him to navigate everything that she then felt guilty and responsible for. So when this person asked that question, it was like fresh there. I was like, oh, interesting. Like, yeah, obviously siblings are affected and will have to navigate questions from peers or might find themselves in an advocacy role as well um, Mm -hmm. because of this. How are you supporting or have you supported um, your daughters through this journey? I think the the child that was most affected other than Jacob by this process was uh, my older daughter, Ella, who was five at the time of her brother's transition and had always been when she thought of Jacob as her sister, she had always been her sister's best friend. And they they had been attached at the hip from birth, which was a beautiful thing always. And I think made it a little harder for her, but made it easier for Jacob because he had a supporter. Um, I think she was one of the first, um, I don't know if you would call it the, the canary in the coal mine to tell us that something was really wrong. Um, and that Jacob was not being treated. People thought he was odd at school and that he might need to find, you know, be able to live in his identity because his being in some kind of purgatory of you're, you're a girl, you're a boy was hurting him. And it was her, her real generosity of heart for such a young child and her compassion toward him, which was another thing that made this journey better than it would have been. But I think it hurt, it hurt her um, at the point of transition. She felt that loss, she expressed that loss. I've, have I lost my sister? Um, and even if she was able to understand then no, you know, you, you have the person you always had before, they're your brother, it's just a different name, it's just a different pronoun. Like us, like the parents, we had an image of a child. We had our whole constructed, you know, child in our head, the person we related to, which was now entirely had to be reconstructed. Um, So she did feel that loss and we were mindful of it. When we began to advocate, it was important for us that she be there. Um, She was in fact a more enthusiastic advocate in the beginning than Jacob was um, and has had her shining moments of standing up for her brother, including at a press conference with our Attorney General, Maura Healy, uh, which has still to this day earns her praise when Maura Healy talks about advocacy for the LGBTQ community. Um, but she's also, there were times that she felt that we had focused a lot of our energies on her brother. And it was true. And he did, even before the transition, uh, take an unfair amount of our parenting um, resources. 
And we needed to make sure that no matter how overwhelmed we were with whatever it was, whether it was what was going on at home or advocacy or work, that we cut out and carved out that extra special me time for her to be with us. And um, overcompensating was definitely a part of the first few years that we began to advocate. And I think it was the right choice because she needed to know that she was just as important as her brother, even though we did have to explain that her brother had some challenges that we needed to step up for. And I told her, if there's something in your life that you need me to fight for because people don't understand who you are, um, I will be there and I'll be fighting just as hard. Making me cry again. Oh <laughs> I'm sorry. Just like so. No, no, I no, no. Send you a box of tissues. Too, I so I <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's just so amazing. Like the one, the one thing we say on repeat in this village is that we, I want every human in the world to have someone who they don't feel responsible for, who they can break down to with their deepest, darkest feelings, the big, hard ones. Um, and you're just, you're creating that for your kids and it's awesome. Uh, and it's making me cry. Wow. <laughs> happy <I'm>, tears, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, happy tears for sure. Awesome. So our last like village question was about boundaries. Like have you had to set boundaries for Jacob as an advocate they were saying like this was in reference to like going to play dates or like at school or things like that have you had to set things up ahead of time or advocate in any way that you didn't have to beforehand absolutely um and I think it was a process of trial and error for us in the beginning in the beginning I told more people so uh when he was five and we had just transitioned um, if he seemed to, you know, want to hang out at a kid's house um, more than once, perhaps, or even sometimes even the first time, I would quickly tell a parent, so, hey, you know, I just want you to know in case it comes up, um, Jacob's transgender, and this is what it means in the simplest form possible. Um, the reason I did that when he was very young is sometimes toilet, toileting takes two people on a play date, especially if you wait too long or whatever, yeah. <laughs> um, as, you, as you parents all know. And there were, there was a chance, there was a chance that it would come up um, and um, even a chance that he would say something and that a parent might be confused. So I would look at that parent and I would look at their eyes and I would know very soon if they were either just curious, supportive, or somehow recoiled. And that would that would give me information that I needed to decide whether I would kind of foster this friendship or kind of trying to let it, let it slide away. People surprised me. They really did. People surprised me by asking questions and at the beginning seeming a little uncomfortable um, and moving toward comfort as they understood a little bit more about it. And I think again, back in 2014, uh, not a lot of public knowledge about this. So Pretty much everybody I talked to was taken by surprise, um, but we managed. Um, in the beginning, we told camp counselors or, or, um, or when we signed him up for camp, because again, like you put the you put a kid in a, an environment all day, they'll be going to the bathroom, they'll be they'll be getting wet in the pool. Um, sometimes counselors help kids change, and it's like I didn't want anyone to be caught by surprise, um, but. Now that the environment is different, and now I think that there's a far more awareness, I think about the need to know people, and that group has shrunk dramatically. I won't tell everybody who he hangs out with. It's none of their business. Um, he is happy and adjusted and knows who he is, and you know, let everyone else discover who he is and not um, judge him in some preconceived way. Um, so that has definitely shifted over time. Um, and it is still like our school principals and um, occasionally the teacher and maybe the school nurse or the guidance counselor, who knows. And when I become comfortable enough with a parent, um, with Jacob's permission, I might say something. Just as, you know, I want to give you a heads up because we have done some advocacy publicly 
you may come across an article. Um, this is a very, very proud mom who wants to say her, her kid is great. And look, you're so lucky he gets to hang out with your kid. No, <laughs> no I love it. Yeah. You're welcome. Your kid my, gets to hang yes, out with exactly. mine. <laughs> my, uh, my expression says it all, but I don't actually say that. Um, anyway, so, and we, we've, we've been lucky. We've been really lucky. We live, we live in Massachusetts. It's, um, it's the holy land for, uh, for, for families, you know, with, totally trans or LGBTQ kids, despite the fact that there's still a lot of um, ignorance and bigotry in Massachusetts, don't get me wrong, but um, in, compared to, to some other states where families have a much tougher time and they have tougher decisions about who to tell. And yeah, trust. absolutely. And yeah. probably yeah, different fears or fears that are uh, probably more quickly realized. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. You're amazing. I'm just sobbing my way through this interview. Will you remind people what is the name of your book? Where can they get it? And then also we will in the blog post um, in this episode link to the book and um, other places people can connect with you, your website and social platforms and all that jazz. Um, but you, will you remind people again of your book yeah. and all that jazz? So the book is called What We Will Become. The subtitle is A Mother, a Son, and a Journey of Transformation. Um, it's available now on all major um, book outlets like Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble for pre-order. It's coming out November 12th. And um, it'll also be available as a Audible edition, I believe, a Kindle edition as well. And, um, and I did the audio, which is exciting. It was, that was my question. Amazingly <laughs> cathartic. And just, I mean, I cried, I think in some ways I'm almost going to encourage people to get the audio because you hear it straight from me and all the emotion is there and all the love is there and, and everything. And I, I, I'm so glad I had the opportunity to do that. It was amazing. Um, what we will become November 12th. Uh, we plan to do some media before that and we see a couple of things. So keep an eye out yeah. and uh, always feel free to reach out. My number one purpose as a parent advocate of a trans kid is to, to be there for individual families. There's still a lot of work to do so that kids like mine, kids like ours, um, wherever they are on the LGBTQ plus spectrum, are able to get the same benefits as every other kid out of their education, out of looking for a job, housing, um, being able to have having access to healthcare. And these things are critical for our kids. And unfortunately, there is such a disparity between one state and another, one location and another, whether a kid can have the blockers that they need so that they can have this life-giving medical intervention that they absolutely need to continue their lives. Such a big difference between Massachusetts and Nebraska and, and you know Tennessee. And what I need parents to do is to realize that our kids, they need your village. They need you to go out there and look and see how your local representatives and local legislators and state legislators are voting on issues that impact LGBTQ kids' lives every single day. And to think of us when you, when you stand up and speak out for what you want from your government, think about these kids too, because they're gonna be your kids' friends or your kids' partners, former, like partners employers, employees. employees. <laughs> um, they're part of your community and they're a wonderful part of your community. Um, and please think of us, you know, when you, when you look at this landscape and make choices about voting and who you're voting for. Yeah. Thanks for tying that policy work right back into this. Uh, and my additional hope is that folks can take from this. If, if your kid isn't trans, yeah. how we can raise empathetic, compassionate humans who can show up in community with each other. Um, and I'm grateful to have this village who's committed to doing that work and for this message on how they can support their children in supporting other children, connecting. Exactly. Let yeah. your kids know. Let your kids know about gender identity and about um, different lives and different experiences. And your 
kids are naturally empathetic and they're naturally kind and they're naturally, well, depending on what age they are, but sometimes, you know, but for the most part, yeah. you know, kids will do the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. Give them do the right thing. And I say, it's like sex, like talking about it doesn't make it happen more. Yeah. Right? Like <laughs> just, we exactly. have to talk about it. Talk about uh, <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. You. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search Seed and Sow colon Voices of Your Village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes I'll wear my kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're Amy more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.